This is an ABC podcast. Okay, my name's Professor Michael Bull. I'm at Flinders University. I suppose lizards sort of fit kind of halfway between birds and mammals that everyone kind of likes and things like spiders and snakes that people just don't like. This was going to be a story about lizards. But it turned into something that I could never have predicted. Just weeks after I recorded this interview with Professor Michael Ball from Flinders University, he passed away unexpectedly. His death destabilised something that is very important to Australia. Now, you okay? I'm okay. I'm Ann Jones, and you might have heard that Off Track will be off air soon. So I'm playing you the episodes that will stick with me for a long time. This is the voice of Michael Bull. Okay, so it's a thing that we in South Australia call the sleepy lizard, but in Western Australia they call it the bobtail goanna. It goes across into Victoria where it's called the stumpy tail. In New South Wales they call it the shingleback and up in Queensland they call it the pinecone lizard. It's a kind of a big, slow-moving skink around about 30 centimetres long. It weighs up to a, nearly a kilogram. It's got armoured scales that give it a great deal of protection, moves very slowly. When you come across it, its main form of defence is to open up its mouth and hiss at you with a big blue tongue. looks quite imposing. One of their unfortunate characteristics is that they really like sitting on roads to kind of bask and things, and they're too slow to get off the road when cars come past, so a lot of them get squashed, which is really sad. And we think they can live for up to 50 years in the wild. We've been doing the study for 35 years now, and there are still some lizards that we caught as adults when we started that are still going, uh, still there. The site of Professor Michael Bull's 35-year sleepy lizard study is at a place near Burra in South Australia. It's called Bundy Bore. We're in an area that's in the rain shadow of the Mount Lofty Ranges, so the rains come principally from the west. They dump the rain on the western side of the ranges, and as you cross over, there's no rain left in the clouds, and so we very rapidly get into bluebush country. What do the lizards eat? Um, so they're actually omnivores. They'll feed on just about anything that they can get their mouth around, but they're 95% herbivorous. And so during the springtime, they really love the little annual plants that are growing and particularly the flowers that are on those plants. And indeed, there are a number of introduced weeds. There's a thing called wards weed. There's a thing that in South Australia we call Salvation Jane. They have flowers and the lizards just love those flowers and they just gorge themselves. You find one in the springtime. In fact, I was out yesterday and, you know, they open up their mouth to hiss at you and their mouth is just stuffed full of these kind of green leaves and yellow flowers and things like that. Do they have teeth? Like, I mean, how are they actually yeah. digesting that vegetation? Okay, they do have little peg-like teeth, um, but they don't kind of grind the food up. They just swallow it whole and then their gut is kind of like a big fermentation chamber. There's a really interesting story about Leichhardt, the explorer who got lost trying to get across Australia and I think he's tried all sorts of things and in his journals he actually describes trying to eat one of these sleepy lizards and gives up in disgust because it's just kind of like a, 
bone cage full of, you know, half-digested food and very little fat or, uh, or muscle at all. Professor Bull worked with Dale Berzicott for more than three decades and in the field over the years, Berzicott was joined by generations of postgraduates and field assistants like David Sin, who has heard here radio tracking, catching, numbering and monitoring the health of a sleepy lizard and its ticks. Okay, Eric, you've got lizard 40011, 40011. The long-term data gathered by Bull and his team completely changed our understanding of reptiles. For example, they can be socially bonded. Michael Bull. So during the springtime, we have this really incredible situation where a male will follow closely after a female for many days, for up to eight weeks before they get to mate. And I figured, well, this is kind of cute. You know, they're doing this monogamous pairing behaviour. When I started to research it, I found no one had ever reported this in the sleepy lizard before. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll just compare it to all the other monogamous lizards around the world. So I looked in the literature and found absolutely nobody had reported in any other lizard anywhere in the world. So this kind of really common species was showing this completely unique behaviour. So what happens is the male follows the female for about eight weeks before mating. And so there's a really intriguing question. Why would he spend his time before mating when he could be out feeding and fighting and whatever males might like to do, but instead he spends his time with the female? And then why go back to the same female year after year? So the male will follow the female within a few centimetres. So... It's like a little uh, train, basically, and he just stays close to her. It's um, exciting stuff. I mean, what's going on? Is he in her, her thrall? Is she giving off a chemical that's <coughs> making him attracted to her? Okay, so our theory is that she's actually coercing him to stay with her. She's saying, um, if you don't stay with me, I'm not going to mate with you. Um, I need a prolonged courtship to make me receptive to your advances. And we think that she doesn't actually need to mate um, in any one year because she's got 49 more years to go. So, you know, she doesn't lose a lot if, if the male doesn't comply. So she's basically forcing him to do it. So why would that happen? And we think what the reason is is that the female is gaining an advantage from having a male partner in that she becomes more aware of approaching hazards, dangers, threats... And we, we know that what's happening is the female's really concentrating on feeding as fast as and as much as possible. So she doesn't actually have too many eyes to watch out for other things. She's focusing on the flowers and the, and the plants. So she's, um, so she's using him like a bodyguard? Exactly, yeah. And at one stage we thought maybe what was happening is that the male was guarding that female to ensure that he got to mate with her. So we thought, well, if he was guarding her, then he should actually respond to some kind of approaching rival by sort of fighting off that rival. So we actually got a model of a sleepy lizard, male, and we put it onto the chassis of one of those remote control cars and just drove it up to a large number of pairs of, um, of lizards. And inevitably what happened was that the male, in the, the real male, actually ran away. 
so which is actually the opposite to what you'd expect if he was kind of guarding the female. But by running away, he alerted the female to the fact that, you know, something was was coming and she needed to stop eating and sort of look after herself as well. So, so that seemed like an, a neat kind of story. So being a nice guy lizard doesn't mean you're relegated into the friend zone. You're actually a valuable early warning system for a female who is gorging herself, getting ready to give birth to your babies. Across the population, the researchers found that there were varying levels of perennial monogamy. Some partners stuck together like glue over years, but other lizard couple were less attentive to each other, and this had implications for every aspect of their life say, their reproductive success, even their susceptibility to disease. One of, I think, the underestimated threats to wildlife at the moment is with exotic diseases. And so, for instance, we've had the Tasmanian devil facial tumour disease, which has decimated that species. And we've also had things like the chytrid fungus, which is affecting many Australian um, amphibians. And so lots of the threats to wildlife are likely to come from just unexpected diseases that come in. And so one of the things we're trying to do is to understand how diseases get transmitted around populations. And clearly the social network is going to be one of those transmission mechanisms. So the more friends you have, the more likely you are to contact one with a disease and so become infected yourself. And so we're using our social network analysis with the lizards to understand the transmission and the model that we're using is ectoparasitic ticks, which naturally infect these lizards. The ticks are really quite an obvious part of lizards. Every lizard that you find will have some ticks on it. And we're trying to understand something about whether the personality, the social network structure and all that sort of stuff impacts on the way that these things are transmitted around the population. We certainly know that the lizards that are more connected are more heavily infected with ticks than those that are less connected. So, you know, being part of a socially connected group of of individuals impacts on your likelihood of becoming infected. So am I right in saying then that the the nice guy lizards are more likely to be the ones that are actually successfully mating and the nice guy lizards might be the ones that are more likely to be infected? So, So there's this kind of feedback process because what we've discovered is that if a male, for instance, has got a heavy tick load on it, then it is less likely to be able to retain its partner the next year. And we think that may be simply because he just can't keep up. You know, he's actually kind of having to feed all these ticks and that's taking a bit of his energy and so he's unable to to move around as much. So he's no longer as good a partner. The female then finds another partner. So now what that means is that he then loses his kind of social connection and that means that his risk of infection becomes less and so that he, you kind of get a cycling system where if you're too closely connected, you get infected and then that re- slows you down and so you lose your friends and so you become less likely to be infected and so you can become more vigorous again. So you see this kind of cycle. It's a nice story. Is there, over time, a change in the courtship behaviour? You know, is in humans, some of the romance might die? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so 
We haven't really got to the, the stage of completely understanding those sort of subtle interactions that go on with, within a partnership. But what we do know is that if a partnership has been established for a substantial period of time, they seem to be able to do it more efficiently. And the kind of parameter that we're using here is the time when they mate so that the familiar partners are able to get it done quicker and, you know, for some reason they're able to reach that kind of state of excitement and and get to mate at an earlier time. And, of course, that's an advantage because that means the babies are going to be born a little bit earlier. They'll have a little bit longer during the autumn to get a bit of food to keep them going. What happens in a partnership when one of those partners dies? Um, Yeah, so... Two things happen. One is that we know that there is what we think is grief. Everyone tells us that lizards don't grieve because they're not humans, but, you know, they're doing what we think is analogous to grief. So we've actually seen cases where one individual has died. In one case, a a female got her head caught in some chicken wire. She put it, pushed her head through and couldn't pull it back out again. She just overheated and she died. And the male hung around for two days. He'd come come revisit her every half hour or so. He'd be nudging her, he'd be tongue flicking. And, you know, he was as if he was saying, look, what's wrong? You know, come on, let's carry on like we were before. But, um, you know, he just kept coming back for two days. We had another case, exactly the same scenario, where a male was run over by a car and the female came back and, and just kept on, you know, near him, nudging, trying to get some response. We really think that's kind of grief. It certainly demonstrates the strength of the pair bond, that it actually persists beyond death. Now, you okay? I'm okay. A bit emotional, but... Professor Michael Ball's research into sleepy lizards, as well as his work into pygmy blue tongues and other species, proved that lizards can have partners. They can have long-term friends and foes, long-term memories. They have the ability to navigate within and outside their territories. This was all new stuff, and it was discovered by Bull and his team, and it flipped on its head the understanding we have of reptiles as scaly and unsociable recluses. Many of the discoveries were only possible because of the long-term and in-the-field structure of the study that Bull set up. Michael Bull was 69 years of age when he died just a month after I recorded that interview in 2016 for Off Track. Dr Bob Sharrod is one of Michael Ball's oldest friends and colleagues. One of his favourite tricks was to pick up a lizard when he was showing someone a sleepy lizard and hold it up to his nose and the lizard will almost automatically put its tongue out and lick you on the nose if you do it. You don't hold it so close that it grabs you by the nose, of course, and licks him on the nose. So it's almost a little affectionate kiss from the lizard. So that was, And he did that with... Um, with David Attenborough, when David Attenborough came over to film his lizards. 
One of the problems that we have in the life sciences is that often studies are short. You know, you get research funding for three or four years and then you sometimes have to, you can't get funded or you move on or you do a PhD. So to be able to keep that work going on the sleepy lizard for all that period of time and its parasites and its social interactions and so on was really important. Mike Gardner is now a colleague but was previously a student of Professor Michael Balls. And as time wore on at the faculty at Flinders University, it became obvious that the younger Mike would be the successor of the long-term study sites. And we talked about the idea of was there some kind of major aim and goal that he had with all this uh, long-term study. And he he actually surprised me. I I thought he, he probably would have. But he, he said that it was, no, it was just something that he continued because it was, was a good scaffold for, for doing research. So he was always focused on the next lot of research that he was doing and how this system was able to help and to you know, answer particular questions because he built up such knowledge about it over time that you know, he was able to ask questions that applied to it, you know, major theoretical questions rather than just having, you know, some sort of aim that he was, he was getting to with it all. And that's where these long-term study sites shine. It's not just a plot of lizard weights over time. It's like the best lighting rig in the best theatre in town. It provides a stable base from which you can suspend the latest technology, shining a light right through the centre of the latest questions in ecology. Though you could probably go through and add up all the funding that have gone into this project over the years and you could come up with a number, really, long-term sites like this are scientifically invaluable. So when you know, I expressed an interest in continuing and we had these conversations that went something like, um, Mike, we really should talk about me you know, taking over this, um, this role and this, this system. He says, oh yes, well there's plenty of time for that, I'm not retiring anytime soon. So we never really had a conversation where he said, okay, this is how I do things and this is what I see as what's, what's going to happen in the future and those sorts of things. So it, it's, it's, it was a shame that that didn't never happen. Michael Ball's death was unexpected and the task of calling up all of the collaborators and all the graduate students fell to Mike Gardner. And that included telling Dale Berzicott, who had worked with Professor Bull on the Sleepy Lizard project since 1983, an incredibly long and fruitful research relationship. Uh, when I rang Dale, um, he was in the field at, at Bundy Boar. And I rang him up and um, said, you know, what had happened to Mike and he'd, he'd passed away. And he said, oh, thank you very much and hung up on me quite abruptly. And, uh, and about five minutes later, he rang me back and said, oh, sorry about that. I just, just had a moment. And, um, you know, and every, everything's great in hindsight. And I now see that Dale was really trying hard to, to tell me what was happening in the field and what, you know, what things were and he, he kept shooting information at me and I kept putting him off and saying you know we'll Dale we'll, we'll sit down and we'll we'll go through this and I'll, I'll write it all down and I'll record you and so we had a we had a plan to to try and get together and and do that uh, and that was that was probably going to happen um, this next week coming I think was when we had planned to sort of sit down and and try and work through things. Dale unfortunately um, had a brain aneurysm 
um, three o'clock Tuesday morning and um, came to the hospital, but he he really was not there. There was no brain activity at all and it was just a matter of of time before that that got confirmed Um, and he was pronounced deceased. It, it is quite ironic that both of these people um, passed away within a few months of each other and with a body of work that is substantial. It's substantial in not only in the university, it's substantial in the world as far as long-term data sets go. And uh, all, of, all of that hands-on knowledge is now gone. Over 12,000 individual lizards were captured at the Bundibor site by Professor Bull and the team, and that's probably close to the whole population of the area. It took 35 years of patience and persistence to get to this point. And not everyone has the opportunity or the fortitude to carry out such an endeavour. Professor David Lindenmeyer has several long-running ecological monitoring sites right across the eastern seaboard of Australia. I see these long-term sites, these are really essential parts of Australia's environmental infrastructure. So we hear politicians talk about roads and railways and all those kinds of things, and that's part of the built infrastructure, and yes, that's important. But the nation's environmental infrastructure tells us about how the environment's performing and how it's changing in relation to other changes. It might be land use, it might be climate change, or it might be other things that we don't even understand yet. And the only way that you can really understand many of these things is through very long-term research and monitoring through doing repeated measurements year after year after year. And that's particularly important in a country like Australia, which is already well known for its hypervariability. There is no other country on the planet where things vary as much from year to year as they do in Australia. And so understanding how things change over long periods of time is critical to understanding how this country works. So what we often see is that some of these very important, very long-term studies are maintained by a champion for the project. You know, and Mike Ball was clearly one of those champions, an extraordinary person. That's one of the strengths, is you've got someone with the drive and the passion to make these projects happen. But it's also one of the, the weaknesses, because we've seen from many examples around the world that when the champion for a project retires or dies, moves on, those projects can collapse. So what's going to happen to the site where Professor Michael Bull and Dale Berzicott put in decades of work? Mike Gardner. You know, this next field season was going to be, you know, an opportunity for me to learn from Dale. So at this point in time, I have to then cobble together uh, a group of people who will be able to help me to construct uh, a way forward we're definitely committed to, to doing Oh, well, I'm definitely committed to doing this. And it's actually vital to the ecological community in, in Australia that we continue this because long-term data sets are uh, extremely rare and, and this one's probably the, the longest-running lizard survey in, in the Southern Hemisphere, if not further afield in the world. Because I think this... Uh, data set is is bigger than than both of them. It's, it's it's something that needs to be continued, not not because of of them, but um, for the rest of science and the ecological community. And Mike Gardner, after lots of hard work and a couple of grant cycles, 
did eventually secure a three-year ARC grant to continue the work. It's not forever, but it's a start. Michael Ball was a faculty member at Flinders University. He was an editor of Austral Ecology, he sat on scientific boards and he worked to save critically endangered reptiles. He was husband to June and had three boys and many grandchildren. Dal Berzicott was a loyal and efficient research project coordinator for the whole Sleepy Lizard project. He was invaluable to many graduate students and integral to the data for papers published the world over. When I met him in the field near Barra, his intense enthusiasm for the latest work was overwhelming and it seemed to me that when it came to his passions, he was unstoppable. When he passed away, he left behind the love of his life, his partner, Wendy. They are both missed by their friends and colleagues. And after their work proved conclusively that these lizards had long-term relationships and long-term memories, then maybe they'll be missed too by several hundred lizards who received annual health checkups and well wishes from these two scientists from Flinders University. I'm Ann Jones, and I'll be back soon enough, ready to take you somewhere else. Okay, Ann. Hopefully you'll be happy. Um, all right, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. See okay. you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.